I could encourage, whether it's leaders who are listening or young up and coming attorneys, look out for those opportunities, trust people to make the right decisions and empower them to be leaders. If my firm said to me, no, we don't really want you to launch a cannabis practice because we're afraid of what people are going to say, or no, you might be a little young to be our office managing partner. Maybe those would have been fair decisions, but I view my successes as those that have been built on the backs of people who have allowed me to succeed and achieve the things I've achieved. It's really important that we empower the next generation of leaders because when you do that, they can really accomplish great things. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Our guest today is managing partner at Saul Ewing, Arnstein, and Lair. He is both co-chair of the firm's cannabis law practice, where he counsels various entities that are affected by federal and state cannabis laws, and co-chair of the firm's food, beverage, and agribusiness practice, where he counsels numerous stakeholders to ensure compliance with FDA, USDA, and state and local requirements. Since 2018, he has been recognized by various institutions, including one of America's leading lawyers in cannabis law by Chambers USA, Cannabis Law Rising Star by Law360, and Cannabis Law Trailblazer by the National Law Journal. Please welcome our next lawyer who leads, Jonathan Haven. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm not sure if you're aware or not, but I do ask every guest just a little bit of a slice of life and specifically what gratitude that you might have. So if you could just tell me what is your favorite moment from today? I was able to tour the middle school where my son's going to be going to school next year. It's the same school, but a different part of the school. And seeing the classrooms and being in the community and seeing all the wonderful opportunities that the school has for both of my kids uh, was something that I was really grateful for. What did you love most about the tour? Like what stood out to you? They took us to the STEM lab and they had 3D printers and robots and very different than when I went to middle school. So people just seemed excited to be there, both teachers and students. So that was a good start to my day and my week. It's true. It is so different from when we grew up. I remember taking a typing class, but it was on a typewriter. Yeah, I remember filling out college applications and the internet was there, but it wasn't such that you really could fill out your applications online. And my mother, God bless her, was sitting with a typewriter in our computer room, as we called it. And typing some of my college applications on a typewriter because I did not pay that close of attention during my typing class. So my skills weren't really up to snuff. I'm not like a formal typer. The typing class didn't stick with me either. Oh yeah. My typing style, I call aggressive hunting and pecking because (laughs) I'm still not, uh, you know, the ASDF. I still haven't gotten there quite yet. Let's get into it. What is your lawyer origin story? Yeah, so uh, this isn't the best thing to say to aspiring lawyers, but I probably ended up going to law school because I saw that around me. That's what my father did. I had some cousins, aunts and uncles who did that. I'm thrilled to say that I found my place in the law, but it wasn't until a little bit later on in my career that it all made sense. After college, I applied to law schools right out, but I didn't go right away. I ended up working 
in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill for a couple of years. And I'm glad I did that because I ended up treating law school like a job uh, and a lot differently than I would have if I just went straight through. I went to all of my classes because I was paying for law school myself, still paying a little bit. And so it was just very important to me. And I knew how much each of those credit hours cost. I, I ended up, like I said, working for a couple of years and then I went to school. And after that, I worked in the government first. And then at a couple of law firms, and that led me to where I am now. You said that there were a lot of people around you that were lawyers. What practice areas were swimming around you? Yeah, so growing up in the D.C. suburbs, government was always very prominent in my life. So I actually started interning on Capitol Hill when I was 16 years old, which sounds crazy now, and it is kind of crazy thinking back, but I was always fascinated with the policy process, right? How do these laws get made? How do they empower these regulators to do what they do and to promulgate regulations? So I always had this idea that I was going to be doing something related to the policy process. I didn't know exactly what, but even though, for example, my dad went to law school, he was more on the kind of government and policy side than the practicing of law side. He'd been at some firms throughout his career, but it was more around the regulatory process and how do these industries that are all around us every day, how are they regulated and why do they have to do what they're doing? So that's something that always really stuck out to me and not surprisingly, probably why my first job out of law school was as a regulator with the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. So when you went into law school, having all of this experience around you, did you go in with a very specific focus? I actually went to two different law schools. I transferred after my first year which in hindsight, probably not the most efficient way to get through your three years of law school, but I'm really thankful that I did, both because of opportunities I got at the first school I went to and then opportunities I got from the second school I went to. But I ended up doing a lot in the telecommunications space, wireless, cell phones, internet, cable, those sorts of things. And I went to law school wanting to be a telecommunications regulatory attorney as crazy and as specific as that sounds, I had worked around people in that industry. My last job before I went to law school, I actually worked on a merger between what was then Sirius Satellite Radio and XM Satellite Radio. People forget they used to be two separate companies. And there was a lot of telecommunications issues in and around that, dealing with the Federal Communications Commission and members of Congress on Capitol Hill about this merger. So that was something that really was impactful on me. And I transferred to Catholic University because they had this special telecommunications law program. And throughout law school, I worked at the Federal Communications Commission and at boutique law firms in the telecom space. And despite all of my great planning, I graduated law school in a tough economic time, not dissimilar to what we're dealing with now. And I couldn't really find what I wanted within the telecom space. And I saw this opportunity at the FDA regulating what was then newly federally regulated in tobacco. And I thought, well, it's still regulated industry. I'll be marketable if and when I decide to leave the FDA. And I just decided to pivot. And I'm glad that I did because it gave me the opportunities that I have now. And I do a bit of telecom here and there as it relates to the FDA and healthcare and life sciences, but it's really not a big part of my practice anymore. How long were you at the FDA for? 
I was planning to be at the FDA for a long time, at least a handful of years. And some might not believe this, but this is the true story. I was doing research one day at the FDA and I came across a job posting at a law firm. It was a firm that I knew someone at who actually was a prominent figure at one of the firms that I had spent some time at during law school and as an intern after college. The firm is Morgan Lewis. And I reached out to this attorney at Morgan Lewis. I said, hey, I saw you have this posting for an FDA position. Tell me about that. I didn't know much about the FDA world other than being at the FDA. And before I knew it, I was interviewing at Morgan Lewis. And I ended up only being at the FDA for just slightly over a year. It was a short period of time. With that being said, I'll try to say this about my time at FDA. When you are working in a newly regulated space, and I said earlier in the discussion how at the time, tobacco was newly federally regulated. A lot of people look at me quizzically when I say this. The FDA, really the federal government, has only regulated tobacco since 2009. That seems crazy to people. People think, oh, it's been regulated this whole time. There were Surgeon General warnings, and there was the Master Settlement Agreement, and there were kind of rules of the road, but from a product standard perspective, from an advertising perspective, really it wasn't until the FDA came on the scene after Congress passed the law to give FDA the authority to regulate to build up this body of regulatory policy. And so every day uh, that I was at FDA, it was significant, right? We were issuing the first warning letters and regulations and coming up with the first guidance documents. So on the one hand, how much experience can one get in 12 months? I learned a lot about FDA and First Amendment and industry lawsuits and one step forward, three steps back because of industry challenging things. And when I ultimately was being interviewed by Morgan Lewis, they said, look, we don't really do tobacco work and you don't do these other areas of FDA. Why should we hire you? I didn't answer right away, took a pause, which I think was part of their exercise in asking me that. And I said, listen, you're absolutely right. But one of the reasons I'm interested in your practice, because it's diverse, and I don't want to be a tobacco lawyer, at least not exclusively. And I know how FDA thinks about emerging issues. I understand how they deal with challenges from industry and making sure that the First Amendment is not trampled on and what the limits of that are. And I also said something to the effect of everybody at one point in their career requires a leap of faith. I'm asking you to make that leap with me. And I can't prove it to you today, but I guarantee you that whoever you're looking at, I will outwork them and out hustle them. And that's all I said. I walked out and I'm like, well, <laughs> they're never going to call me again. And they hired me and I was there for about four years and it was a great experience. So you're at Morgan Lewis for four years. And then what do you do? I ended up going to another firm, Venable, work on a lot of the same things that I was working on at Morgan Lewis, Venables, FDA practice, and a lot of dietary supplement practitioners, but not as many kind of traditional FDA lawyers in terms of devices and drugs. And so I saw it as an opportunity as a mid-level attorney to help grow a practice. And I thought that would be an interesting experience. How long were you at Venable for? I was at Venable for 14 months. One of the projects that I worked on at Venable a partner who I became pretty close with, who's actually a referral source of mine now, sends me work. He came to me and said, what do you know about cannabis regulation? And I said, is that even legal? This was in 2015. And 
I didn't know much about cannabis at the time. From a legal perspective, I didn't understand the framework. But Maryland was standing up its medical cannabis program. And there was a group from Colorado that wanted our help acquiring, applying for licenses to grow, process, and dispense medical cannabis in Maryland. And he said, look, you figured out very complex regulatory issues before. Do you want to do this? I said, absolutely. This is an opportunity to learn something new. And how often do you get to learn a brand new area of the law at the same time everybody else is learning it? So I ended up becoming the lead of that team. I wrote a lot of these applications. I scored them critically to make sure that we were maximizing our point values. Right around that time was visiting some very good friends in New York. And I was with their son, who's essentially a nephew to me. And I witnessed him have one of his first seizures. I didn't know anything about medical cannabis and its utility for people with epilepsy and various seizure disorders. But fast forward a bit, he actually got on the Epidiolex trial, and that's the first drug that FDA approved, the first cannabis-derived drug that FDA approved. And so as I'm learning about this new area of the law, I have this personal connection. I start doing my own research. I'm like, there's something here, and I think there's going to be an opportunity as a food and drug lawyer to put my stamp on all of this. And so I decided that I wanted to do more of this work. And I started looking for opportunities in that space. Venable was not, as many firms were at the time, not super open about representations in that space. And a lot of firms still aren't, by the way. I'm Saul Ewing, the firm I'm at now, thankfully is. Part of that was, I think, because of what I pitched to them and what I developed as a practice here. But I wanted to merge a traditional food and drug practice with a cannabis practice. As I tell a lot of younger attorneys out there, most good networking for me occurs through activities with my children, whether that's sports, school. So I met someone whose daughter, I believe, was in the same preschool class with my son. I said, listen, I don't want a job from you. That's the great news. I just, you know, everyone in town. Can you open your contact list to me and help me find something? You all don't do food and drug work. So I don't think you should look at me and I don't think I should look at you. Let's just treat this for what it is. And can you open up your contact list to me? And he said, well, let's go to breakfast. And 90 minutes later, I'm interviewing with the firm. And then I start with the firm a few weeks after that. So it was happenstance. Well, first of all, as someone who has a seizure disorder, I remember clearly when the FDA actually allowed it. It's still one of those weird things, right, where the federal government does not recognize its legalization. But there is this exception where a federal regulatory body like the FDA has allowed it for this specific medical use. I found it really interesting from both as a person that suffers from seizures, but also being a lawyer and seeing kind of the dynamic of that. Has that ever happened before in that way? The framework that cannabis is under is very odd. It's hard to come up with another example, although I'm sure I've seen one or heard one over the years in conferences that I attend and clients that I work with. But yeah, to your point, cannabis is Schedule 1 federally illegal for all purposes. Schedule 1, by definition, means high potential for abuse and no medical use, none. So when you have a cannabis-derived drug like Epidiolex that was created, I mean, they had to study this and cultivate the cannabis abroad because it's so difficult to do that domestically here. And then there's a scheduling decision and there's so many moving parts to say, okay, 
we want to take something that's federally illegal and study it. Studying it's near impossible. It's one of the things that members of Congress are talking about right now. Uh, it's something actually that the president just signed a bill into law to make research a bit easier. There's some misgivings about that bill, which we won't get into, but it's a step in the right direction. So kudos to Congress and the president for doing that. But it's very difficult to not only study these substances, but then to get them through FDA. I've taken drug development clients to FDA to try to get cannabis-derived drugs approved through FDA's approval pathway. It's extraordinarily difficult. It's no wonder why there's so few cannabis-derived therapies that are even being discussed because there's a stumbling block after stumbling block. So let's talk about your work. Let's talk about what you do today at Saul Ewing, because I know you do more than just cannabis work. And I know that you're also starting some practices around all of these other experimental type drugs as well. So I would love for you to tell our listeners about the work that you're doing now. Sure. So I co-founded and co-chair our cannabis law practice, which by its name suggests that we do a lot in and around the cannabis space. So we represent everybody from a single dispensary in one state to public company, multi-state operators that are publicly listed because of the strange laws in this arena. They're listed as Canadian public companies. So they're listed on, say, the Canadian Securities Exchange. Right now, if you touch the plant, meaning you grow or process or dispense cannabis, you're not listed on NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange. You have to go public up in Canada. There have been some direct listings here in the States, but they're still not trading on New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ. So they go public up in Canada. And conversely, Canadian public companies, because cannabis is federally legal in Canada, they can be traded on the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ. So we represent everybody from single state operators, one license to operate in 14, 15, 16 different states. We also represent real estate investment trusts, colleges and universities who have questions around research and drug testing and student accommodations. We represent developers, underwriters, insurance companies, really everyone and anyone in and around the cannabis space, whether they touch the plant or not. It's tax, it's regulatory, it's securities, it's labor and employment, it's litigation. Litigation is pretty big in the space now as the industry is maturing. I'm not a litigator. That's not what I do. I'm on the regulatory side. But yeah, that's on the cannabis side. And it's food, beverage, and agribusiness. So that's everything from conventional foods to agricultural commodities to the biggest companies in the Midwest that you've never heard of, but are massive stakeholders in this space. Big farms to seed producers to commodities exchanges, those sorts of things. And so We're doing deal work in that space. We're doing securities. We're doing regulatory, tax, IP, anything and everything. So that's what we've done in the food space. Psychedelics, you you referenced this a few minutes ago. It's definitely a newer area for us, and it's a newer area for everybody. There's right now two states, Colorado and Oregon, that have laws on the books for medical psychedelics programs, psilocybin specifically. Each of these states, it's a little bit broader Oregon is primarily psilocybin, which some people know as magic mushrooms. Colorado is various kinds of natural plants besides psilocybin. But we're starting to get the same questions we got in 2014, 2015 around cannabis. How can I get one of these licenses? Who are the investors in this space? How do I launch some sort of a business enterprise here? And So we are slowly but surely getting into that space in a way that's not 
you know, we want to be authentic. We don't want to overrepresent what we've done and what we haven't done, but we're pretty candid to say, look, we've pretty well figured out the cannabis space across the country and across the world. And we're doing the same thing in the psychedelic space. So I think that'll become an extension of our cannabis practice, but we're still figuring that out and figuring out who the players are and what they're looking for. So I have a question about psilocybin Yep. or the magic mushrooms. Yep. Like what is the medical use case for those? So psychedelics is a broad, it's an umbrella term that can include anything from psilocybin mushrooms to MDMA to ketamine to lots of different substances. And so if you hear someone say psychedelics, that can mean a lot of different things. Sometimes people just mean mushrooms or psilocybin. Sometimes people mean something broader. So to answer your psilocybin question first, it is believed to have pretty significant therapeutic properties from depression to PTSD to just various other mood disorders. And I'm not a scientist, but I read a lot of research when it comes to whether it's cannabis or psilocybin or MDMA or ketamine. And I have to tell you, I think the clinicals on psychedelics are very, very promising. And I'm starting to see a similar arc in the psychedelic space that we saw and have been seeing in the cannabis space. So I'm in Baltimore today, stones throw away from Hopkins. Hopkins has been doing some very impressive work in the psychedelic space. There was one study I read, and I can't remember if it was from Hopkins or somewhere else, but they took 60 patients, which is not a lot. Talk about end size or the sample size. That's not a huge trial, right? But people with PTSD that was drug resistant, right? They would take drugs and therapy, and it just was not having an impact. One course of MDMA therapy with these 60, and I think it was um, veterans, never had an episode of PTSD again. So that's a pretty staggering statistic. And by the way, for listeners who are like, where is he getting this from? This was a story that was featured on CBS Sunday morning. So it's not like this is the bottom of the internet that no one's ever heard of this study before. So yeah, it's therapeutic uses around depression, PTSD, mood disorders, but we're scratching the surface. I think it could be for a lot more than that. I know this is still like really like a burgeoning area in the United States. Are there other countries that you're looking to that have already kind of established this further or have a little bit more experience as it relates to the evolution of these psychedelics? There's an interesting history around psychedelics, just like there is around cannabis. Psychedelics have been used and are used in many other cultures. A lot of it can be tied to religious ceremonies. A lot of it can be tied to first peoples, nations. And the answer is yes. As far as a commercial psychedelics program, off the top of my head, I'm not sure that I can point to another country that has advanced on psychedelics. But I would say there's segments within a lot of different countries, Central and South America, that psychedelics use has been around for centuries. So yeah, it's not a it's not a great answer to your question, but it's just the experience exists like it does in the United States, but it's not as formalized. Well, yeah, it's fascinating to me because with cannabis, for example, there were other countries that were way farther along and how they were handling it both from a medical perspective, but also just from a recreational perspective, right? I think about Holland, I think about these other countries that were many steps ahead of us in a lot of ways. This seems as though the United States is a little bit more ahead of the game to the rest of the world when it comes to considering how this could help people. Yeah, I've been pleasantly surprised. You hear psychedelics and you hear this 
like reefer madness mentality. I know reefer madness refers to cannabis, but you know, this like, uh, people are going to be tripping and there's all this bad effect and psychosis and all those sorts of things. And so I give pockets of the United States credit, Oregon and Colorado in particular, but the federal government is also, there've been bills out of Congress to study psychedelics to benefit particularly service members and veterans. And although those haven't gone as far and have not been as successful as we would like, the fact that we're having those conversations has been a bit surprising. The other thing I point to is the concept of microdosing has become pretty prominent in the psychedelic space. So we're not talking about using these and having that trip or bad experience. It's a drop in the bucket, so to speak. It's enough to produce a therapeutic effect without having all of the maybe undesired psychedelic or kind of psychoactive type reactions. So it's a different conversation than I think a lot of people understand it to be. Yeah, I think that's a really important distinction. Um, Like even with like when we talk about THC versus CBD, there are different kind of effects from that and that this is the same plant that we're talking about, but there's different parts of the plant that you can use for different purposes. The same idea with microdosing, it's like you can use something that is historically been used recreationally in this way and had this effect, but take pieces of that to help people. So I think it's an important distinction. Yeah, for sure. And the other thing is, and you, you've pointed this out, cannabis has 100 plus phytocannabinoids, whether it's THC or CBD or CBG or CBN. Psilocybin is but one psychedelic, right? There's also MDMA, there's also ketamine. What's interesting is ketamine is actually in schedule three. So there are opportunities currently to leverage that as a therapy. And I think it's reported to have pretty promising results. I actually know some people who are on ketamine therapy and has had good results for them for pain and for depression. So when people start talking about new areas of the law and they want to develop a practice, I always tell people, I'm like, look, you have to walk before you run and run before you sprint. You have to understand all of these are different things and you have to understand what the legal treatment of each of them is and who the stakeholders are. It's great to develop a practice, but I'm not out there saying, hey, hire us to do anything, everything psychedelics related. I'm pretty candid about the fact that we're getting questions from clients. We're doing our research. We are representing people when it makes sense to represent people, but not being everything to everybody. Because unfortunately, in these new areas of the law, there's a lot of charlatans who tell you they do everything and it can't be the case. It's too complex of an area. And too new of an area. Yep. I could talk to you about this for like another three hours. But before we end this part of the conversation, is there anything else about what you do that you wanted to share with our listeners? I think the only other thing that I would say is the opportunities that my firm has given me from a leadership perspective. We are very big on empowering the next generation of leaders. I am not ashamed to say my age, which is I'm about to be 40. And the fact that I'm in leadership positions at my firm really tells you a lot about who we are. And by the way, I am not the exception to the rule. If you look at the firm's footprint, we have 16 offices. They are young, dynamic leaders that the firm's empowering to make really good decisions on the firm's behalf. And yet, other young dynamic leaders in their corner and build something great together. If I could encourage, whether it's leaders who are listening or young up and coming attorneys, look out for those opportunities, trust people to make the right decisions and empower them to be leaders. If my firm said to me, no, we don't really want you to launch a cannabis practice because we're afraid of what people are going to say, or no, you might be a little young to be our you know, office managing partner. Maybe those would have been fair decisions, but 
I view my successes as those that have been built on the backs of people who have allowed me to succeed and achieve the things I've achieved. And so it's really important that we empower the next generation of leaders because when you do that, they can really accomplish great things. Yeah, I agree. And I want to actually hone in on something that you said, because it actually it echoes something that another guest of mine, his name is Parker Moore. He does environmental in uh, Beverage and Diamond, but he also was someone that kind of started a practice at a new firm. What was your pitch? Like if someone wanted to start a new practice, what is some advice that you could give them to kind of propose that to a firm? Having an idea is, I think that goes without saying, but being passionate about it, right? People have approached us all the time. I want to start this, or I want to help you grow that. And they know what they're talking about, but the passion is just not there. When you're going after clients and trying to convince existing clients that they should engage you for your services to help them build out something in their portfolio that they might not have yet, you really have to be passionate. Also having a very defined vision for how you want this to go. I'm not saying you have to have a 25-page business plan with every conference you want to speak at and every client stakeholder you want to represent, but I knew what I wanted to do. I had a vision to say, look, I think this is all going to be federally regulated at some point, and I want to prepare our clients for eventual federal regulation because in the interim, it's going to set them really up well for acquisition or merger or being an attractive stakeholder in the space, if they treat themselves as if, hey, we are federally regulated, we buy by current good manufacturing practice. And even though we don't have to have a clinical study operating in this sort of form or fashion. And so it was all about looking forward and saying, this is how I think this is going to go. This is the approach I'm going to take with our clients. I'm going to be as above board as possible, because let's be honest, there's stigma attached to cannabis. If I approach it as like, hey, I think it'd be really cool to have a cannabis practice and I didn't have a plan behind that, what's the firm going to think? I didn't want to give anyone an excuse to say he's not serious about this. And so I had an idea. I said, this is what I want to do. Here's how I want to approach it. Here's the ramp up period. Here's how long I think it's going to take. I was very honest, right? I said, look, this isn't going to be a buildup. This is not going to be a revenue generator from day one. The timing ended up being really good. We launched our practice formally in 2017 and worked on a dozen go public transactions in an 18-month period. Part of that was happenstance. Part of that was the trust we built. But having a strong brand and a trustworthy brand is really, really important. And obviously, things are changing and they're new. But do you consider, let's say, you know, these are the amount of people that we could help or these are the amount of people that have the potential to include this in their portfolio. Are there those kind of pieces that you're thinking about early on? Yeah, I think we certainly look at client lists and client focuses to say, okay, here are our services. Not all of them can benefit from the services of a cannabis law practice or a food and bev practice or a psychedelics practice, but you would be surprised, right? When I first got started down this road, I didn't really think that colleges and universities were going to be a sweet spot client for me and for our practice. But a lot of colleges and universities are thinking about degree programs to arm the next generation of uh, employees in the cannabis industry, or you know, they want to conduct research, or they have questions around drug testing. And what if someone has a medical card? Can we fire them if they fail a drug test, if they have a legitimate medical condition? So it's coming up with ways to say, okay, who are our clients? What are our touch points? How can we benefit our existing client base and grow that client base with our suite of services? 
if I just said, well, we should only represent cannabis operators. I mean, that's like a quarter or a third, you know? So I think it's important to understand and think outside the box to say, yeah, it would be really easy to just represent operators, but what about underwriters? What about family offices that want to invest in the space? What about colleges and universities? What about serial entrepreneurs or developers of intellectual property and technology or lighting equipment? Who would have thought those outside the cannabis industry wouldn't really think that lighting equipment's that important, but HVAC systems and lighting equipment are two of the most important things that our clients deal with. So again, it's understanding the industry well enough to know how broad the approach can be. I love all the examples of all the different facets of things when you think about what's important to not only your current clients, but potential clients down the road. So thank you for sharing that. Um, all right. So I think you've answered this a little bit, but I'm going to try to pull some more insights from you. What does leadership in law mean to you? Paying it forward. One of my adjunct professors in law school, this was his big phrase, was paying it forward. And he had a cadre of alumni, people he had taught, and he synced all of his current students up with his former students, right? Going out to lunch and mentoring people, but paying it forward with examples to lead, right? It's empowering the next generation. It's trusting people to take that deposition or to lead that meeting at FDA. I benefited from those early leadership opportunities. And so what I try to do is paying it forward to other people so that it's about them. It's not about me. It's giving them the opportunity to develop, not about me shining the light on my leadership. I view myself as a servant leader. I work for other people and hopefully I can help continue to steer us in the right direction, but it's making sure that everybody has the same opportunities that I have by paying it forward to that next generation. What is something that people seem to misunderstand about the work you do? I'm sure you have a lot <laughs> being in the industry that you're in. I think people think that being a cannabis lawyer is monolithic or it's easy because it's just one thing, right? They think, oh, you're a cannabis lawyer. You know, your clients grow cannabis and they sell it and everybody wants to buy it and they're just making a lot of money. So it must be easy. I heard a great quote from one of our clients the other day. It's like a startup on steroids with both hands and maybe one foot tied behind your back. The federal tax treatment in this area, people say to me, well, your clients don't pay taxes. I don't understand what the big deal is. And I say, not only do they pay taxes, but they pay way more tax by comparison than non-cannabis businesses because it's federally illegal. And there's this pesky little provision in the Internal Revenue Code called 280E, and it makes our clients' tax rates insanely high, so high that you wouldn't believe how they could even make any money and keep the lights on and pay their employees. So yeah, it's a lot of fun. Don't get me wrong, but being a cannabis regulatory attorney is challenging in and of itself because there are all these different state regimes. It's not one federal program. We have to know Florida's rules in New York and Maryland and California and all these different markets. It's very complex and it's not to be taken lightly because when you're representing clients in a federally illegal industry, you better know what you're doing or there's going to be serious repercussions for your clients and for you. What is one piece of advice you would give to our listeners? These are leaders and future leaders looking to follow your lead specifically. If you see something that you are passionate about, embrace it, go after it, but do so in a way that inspires trust and confidence. Follow it with a plan and show others that you are excited about it, so they should be excited about it too. And I'll just, as an extension on that, say, if you're in a rut and you feel like, I don't like what I'm doing, look, I get it. Not everybody can pivot. Most of us need the money that we're making and can't just decide to go on hiatus for a year and figure out 
what we want to do, but there might be opportunities within your existing firm to work with someone that you haven't worked with before or someone outside your firm, whether that's through volunteering or being on a board or whatever it is, you never know where that passion is going to be sparked and where that platform is going to be given to you. So if you have an inkling that something is out there for you or you know what that is, follow it and show others that they should be excited about it too. It's great advice. What do you do for self-care? What do I do for self-care? So I have a 10-year-old and a six-year-old and being with them is definitely a good escape. They're very entertaining, both big personalities in their respective ways, but something that my father-in-law started with his kids when they were younger is these individual one-on-one kid trips, right? So dad and son or dad and daughter. And I've started doing that with my kids. I took my six-year-old last summer to Nashville. We're both country music fanatics. Some might say that's irresponsible parenting to take your six-year-old to Nashville, but I can tell you she held her own and had bands dedicating songs to her after lunch. I love that. Then my son and I bond over anything and everything sports or big Chicago Cubs fans. So we go to Chicago in the summers, but being with them, those one-on-one trips, traveling with my wife and entertaining friends at our house. We're kind of at our best when our house is noisy and full. I love that you took your daughter to Nashville. You're inspiring me right now. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's it's, uh, wearing a matching Dolly Parton t-shirt with your daughter on an airplane. You really haven't lived until you've done that. So I'll just, I'll leave it there. We need to leave it there because that is the best way to end this interview. (laughs) Thank you so much, Jonathan, for being on the show. If someone wanted to connect with you, what's the best way that they can do that? Sure. So I'm on Twitter, regulatory, A-T-T-Y, not the sexiest Twitter handle out there, but it's pretty direct. I'm on LinkedIn. If you just search Jonathan Havens, if you just put Jonathan Havens, Saul Ewing into trusty Google, I think you'll get a hold of me. Wonderful. Thank you so much again, Jonathan, for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you, leaders and future leaders, for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. That's why Lawline's rated the highest in the industry with over 1,000 verified reviews on Trustpilot. Lawyers Who Lead listeners get $100 off Lawline's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.